Well, good morning, friends. Great to see you all today. Oh, it's always a surprise who's going to be speckling and dotting the sanctuary. And hello, friends, as well, on the internet. Um, You're still important, and we care about you. So, and we just want to see you face-to-face a bit more often. And some of you have probably been too gracious and not signed up yet for the other people. Just so you know, the other people will totally abuse your generosity, and they will sign up every single time without thinking about you, so you need to get onto that sign-up list, he said, with love in his heart. Um, the, the message got switched uh, yesterday, so there's no slideshow, but, and here we go. And so we're all managing um, this stuff. It's really interesting how coming into the new building and finally getting like a clicker that everyone is confident in, a clicker that to move slides, how often the slideshow is still killed, either by the, the projector not working or things changing right before you're supposed to preach. And so submit to the Lord. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter 2. And roundabout way of introducing this, um, many of you know I had a kidney stone two weeks ago, which precluded me from speaking last week, and that was going to be the best message of the year, probably of all of 2021. So unfortunately, only the nurses got to hear it delivered through a hydromorph fog. But um, one of the things I really love about health care experiences is that it's one of the places in the world where our desire for truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth comes out, right? When you're sick, you want somebody to tell you what's going on. Because half the problem of when you're sick is not knowing what's going on, right? I don't feel well. I'm dizzy. It feels like somebody has shoved a prison shiv into my lower back on the left-hand side, and I'm bleeding out internally. And... Part of the trouble is not knowing what's going on and not knowing if there's anything you can do about it. And so the the unknown is the trouble. And so when you get there, and the doctors who have made a profession out of not caring how much pain you're in come into the room to start talking details, get a few smiles out of that one, it's shocking, actually. You know, you can be retching in pain alone, and they're like, well... We're going to run some tests, and that can be their bedside manner. And God bless them. They need to survive these experiences too. So they can come in, and you just want to know the truth first, don't you? Because once you know the truth, then you can answer the questions about, like, is there, is there help? Is there hope? What's my part? What's your part? You can start getting a plan together. Um, so I, I, I really like that. I really like that moment of realizing, like, all people, like, once, once I stop screaming, all people care about is figuring out what's going on. It's just, it's truth time. And I really appreciate that because that sensation, that atmosphere of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, help me God, is becoming more and more rare in North America where we want so much more about just like our pleasure and stuff like that. Like it's this weird thing. We aren't a truth-dominated culture anymore. In fact, some of the luminaries called North America post-truth, where people just go online and read the websites 
that create the world they want to live in. And that's so many of us, right? You pick three or four news sites, you pick three or four bloggers, and they create for you your small t truth. And it's not even necessarily a shared desire that we would all have a shared truth. Until you get a kidney stone. And then you will literally claw the eyes out of somebody so that they will stick a few needles in you and then tell you, is this a kidney stone or is my kidney failing or is this some other thing? True? So I do appreciate that. And so part of this message and part of this, I think it's going to feel a little bit different than some of my messages, is just coming back to like there are times where we just need to talk cold just need to talk turkey. Now, if you were with us two Sundays ago, the last time I spoke, the heart of that message, the title of that message, as part of Finding Freedom in February, is, was to say that real freedom involves getting free from sin. Not necessarily the ability to do what you want, but the freedom that comes from realizing that people get trapped in sin, That all sin is slavery. Jesus says everybody who does a sin is a slave to sin. And that real freedom comes from Jesus liberating us from the bondage that we have, that we actually want to be slaves to sin. We, We keep choosing it. And one of the things I said during the message is, I spent some time on this, you might remember, is saying it is so crazy how blind sin can make us that we just don't even see how trapped we are. Sometimes it feels like the Lord puts exclamation marks on my messages or, more likely, puts it on my heart to say something that he is going to help understand what happened in the world because a few days after that message, it came out after an official investigation that the world's most popular apologist, Christian apologist, who passed away recently, had had a completely secret double life in which he had kept women who he abused physically and spiritually that he totally hid for years, even though there was one opportunity years ago when he was confronted on something like this and he had the opportunity to come clean but instead decided just to go more deeply into secret, terrible sin that only came out after his death. And you look at something like that, and you remember, you just got up here and said, it is terrifying how blinding sin can make people. Even the world's most influential apologist, the guy who goes to the unbelievers and tries to convince them to come to Jesus, can have a completely corrupt, devastating hidden secrets in life and choose to go to the judgment seat of Christ without bringing it into the light before he went. That's crazy. Now, part of the reason I'm coming to this message, and I promise I will read the scripture really soon, 
is that in my own heart, something that I didn't appreciate happened very much as I heard this news and I actually really liked this guy and had read more than one of his books and would commend him to other people. And I think even our church had recommended his materials more than once. And I found out the news about this and I was so unmoved because this is just normal North American Christianity. All our famous leaders are adulterers. Or corrupt. Or money-grubbing. Or manipulative. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Uh, it's just, it's, it's once a month. This is normal. This is normal for us. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried, as a pastor, how lowly I think of pastors. And I had a friend text with me yesterday, and he's asked me what I think about this pastor who's in Alberta who's in jail for gathering people together. He's like, what do you think about this situation? And my response was, I've known about a dozen pastors who've been arrested and sent to jail, and only two of them didn't deserve it. That's my initial response. Usually, they absolutely deserve to go to jail for what they've been doing. And we just do not live in a time where the title pastor means anything. Ah! I'm not necessarily right, but I'm telling you what my response was. Oh, Famous Christian pastor misuses funds in order to facilitate sexual sin. This isn't even news anymore. That's not a good thing. Amen? So maybe this message is all about me. Maybe it's not. But I actually think that every once in a while, we need to sit down as Christians and say, we're not well in North America. And as much as we don't want to be judgmental, and as much as we don't want to be depressed, we need sometimes a doctor to walk in the room and say, you have a 4.3 millimeter kidney stone on the left side of your body, and and we're not going to do anything for surgery. The best we can do is manage your pain, and it might take a while. You just need to lie down for a bit. And by the way, there's a bunch more on the right side. Plus, you have gallstones. You're a stoner. And even if we mean it the, like, calcified way and not the other way, we're going to give you prescriptions to make sure it's both ways for a while. And one of the most interesting, I've had about five kidney stones. This was the, probably the most painful one, um, but it was not the longest one, which I'm really grateful for, is the Lord let me have a really terrible withdrawal experience from the drugs this time like with the night sweats and the not being able to stop your limbs from shaking and not being able to form memories and not being able to feel good thing. And I, when these bad things happen, I always think there's probably somebody I'm going to meet someday who has withdrawal and I need to be able to love them from experience. And so if that's you, we can commiserate about what it feels like to be doing this in your bed at 12 o'clock when 
you're under three blankets and in pajamas with a hoodie on and still shivering. We can commiserate about that now. But at the same time, it's a good reminder that sometimes the healing process is only a little bit less uncomfortable than not dealing with things. But, but the question is, like, do you want to be holy unto the Lord? So with that in mind, let's read about Eli's worthless sons. The background, this is the book of Samuel. And by the way, I've got a podcast thingy on the website now, and I'm going to go through verse by verse the entire book of Samuel, just mostly for my enjoyment because I like talking about Scripture. But if you want to really understand how this book works, then I invite you to just listen to them and, uh, and just enjoy it. But this is what's going on. This book is about the formation of true kingship in Israel. Israel's going from a confederacy of tribes that unite every once in a while when they're oppressed to a kingship. And it's not a good or easy transformation because wanting the kingship's not good. But as God is moving Israel forward in history, he has to, it's really the story about failed leadership, corrupt leadership being replaced by people with a heart after God. That's the trajectory of the entire book, is God replacing corrupt leadership with people who have a heart after God. And this story that we're going to start with is Eli is the high priest that... Um, you remember Hannah gives baby Samuel to Eli to raise up because she's barren and she wants a child. And she says to God, God, I want a child more than anything. And if you'll give me this child, I will 100% give him back to you by bringing him back to the tabernacle and leaving him with you to be your servant. And God takes her up on this plea and gives her a miracle child, which he then receives back as a prophet for himself. But Eli's the high priest and he's semi-corrupt. And he has these two sons who are very corrupt. And here's the story, starting in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was, what, was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites that came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let me burn the fat first. The fat was God's portion. It was the best part, and it was all meant to belong to the Lord. According to the law of Moses, the fat belonged to the Lord. Nobody got to eat fat in Israel. It was all meant to be sacrificed. Sacrifice the Lord because it was the best part of the offering. So here's this Israelite pleading to for true worship. Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
And Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked from the Lord. And so they would return to their home. Skipping to verse 22. Now Eli was old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance at the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I'll stop reading from there. God, would you come and give us help together? God, you know that no one is righteous before you when you array yourself in your holiness. And if you arrive to judge, Lord, no one can give a defense based on their own thoughts and feelings and actions and justify themselves in your sight. Lord, we all need your forgiveness and your grace and the blood of Jesus is our protection. And yet you are a holy God And you desire holiness in your leaders and holiness in your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a miracle amongst us today that without us becoming embittered or afraid, you would help us to see the holiness of God and welcome the fear of the Lord and to, by the move of the Spirit, enter into deeper walking with you and grow in having a true heart for God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I've read part of the story. And in the part that I've read, you can hear that the two big complaints that God has against this priesthood, the sons of Eli, is number one, they take the best of the worship for themselves. It was meant to be for God. The fat was meant to be for God, but they wanted it for themselves. And so they're part of this whole worship um, machine. They're part of the tabernacle ministry. And even though they're the chosen sons of Levi and they're sons of the high priest, they don't treat it with the faith that ought to be in their heart. And they find a way to manipulate it in order to get the best parts for themselves. And in the meantime, at the tabernacle and functioning within the ministry there are these serving girls who work at the tent of the temple and the young men and eli's sons are having sexual relationships with them and in some ways these kind of reflect the main ways in north america that we fall apart is that turning worship into a um, personal and fattening process Ministries that fatten the leaders of the ministries, as well as um, success that's an excuse for sex, if you want to put it like that. And so, what happens with these young men 
is that God comes to Eli through a prophet twice, one an unnamed prophet and also through Samuel as he's sleeping before the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember that. And he tells Eli that he's going to judge his house because Eli failed to restrain his sons. And he's allowed this stuff to happen. And he says, I am going to vindicate my offerings that your sons have despised. And you're going to know it was me because I'm going to kill both of your sons in the same day. Israel and Israel gathers up all of its forces to fight against the Philistine armies. This is the real deal. This is this is real warfare. This isn't even just like COVID semi-serious. We're talking like if you lose the battle, a bunch of you are not coming home and your wives are toast and your kids are toast kind of warfare. And so they arrive all together. And in the first battle, Israel loses. And because they're in this corrupt kind of mindset, Instead of responding to their military loss by humbling themselves and confessing their sins and weeping before the Lord, they think to themselves, why don't, why don't we go get the ark? That's like the gold box, that's God's presence. Maybe we lost because we didn't have enough of God's presence on the battlefield. And they're starting to think kind of like idolaters themselves, like God is one place. And somehow if he lets them lose a battle over, over in Grunthal, it's because the Ark was stuck here in Steinbach because of the lockdown restrictions or something like that. So they're like, let's go to Steinbach. We'll pick up the Ark. We'll haul it down to Grunny. And now next time when we have the Grunt tussles, we'll come out victorious. And because they were having this corrupt mindset that thought the box brings the blessing... They ended up pretty much destroying themselves because they learned this hard lesson that if your heart is not holy, the presence of God is not safe. They brought the presence of God to the military fight and it went worse than when he wasn't there. Because God decided now's the day that I am not going to put up with them jerking me around anymore. And now's the time I'm going to remove from them the deception that they can mess around with my worship and they can mess around with my daughters and there's no consequences. And Hophni and Phinehas are killed in a day on the battlefield. And when the news comes back to Shiloh where Eli is and they found out that the the presence of God has been captured, the ark's been captured to be taken away to Philistia, Eli is struck and he falls off his throne and he breaks his neck and dies because he's gigantically overweight because Eli himself has been benefiting from all the fat of the offerings that has not been going to the Lord. Now it's this great story because God is so holy and so in control and so strong. I love this story and this is in my notes, but you've got to hear this. The Philistines capture the ark and they take it to Philistia in order to be a trophy of their victory. And they put it into the temple of their god Dagon and they wake up the next morning and Dagon, the temple idol, is falling down, bowing down to the ark of the covenant. Because God wants to be holy in the world too. And one of the sad things is, is the Philistines respond better to the holiness of God than Israel does. 
Because they put up their idol again and they think, well, maybe it was just an accident. They put Dagon back up where he belongs. And they wake up the next morning and Dagon's fallen down the next day and his head is broken off, the symbol of his power. And his hands, the symbols of his abilities, are broken off. And the idol is wrecked, bowing down in front of the ark of God. And then God starts striking the Philistines with these crazy tumors and hemorrhoids. He starts making their intestines come out their bums. And they respond with faith. They start going, ah, get this ark away from us. He's too, this holy God is too holy for us. And they start sending the ark to all these different towns to try to escape from the holiness of God. And then eventually they go to their own pagan sorcerers and say, how do we get out of this mess? And they're pagan sorcerers who are better men than the priests of their day say, honor God. If you're going to send this back, make, make, make golden gifts, load up the ark with golden images of your afflictions, say sorry, repent and send the ark back to Israel. And they do it. And the hand of God is lifted off of the Philistines. And the Israelites see the ark coming back and they're all excited. Yay, they think they're like, you know, a guy who um, has messed up with his wife and gotten kicked out of the house. And now she's back on the driveway and she's coming back and thinks, yay, it's great. Everything's going to be great. And we're going to have a really great evening. And they come back and they worship for a little bit. But then God strikes them again and kills 70 men before the ark because even though the ark's been gone for a little while, Israel hasn't really repented yet. And so their relationship isn't back on. We can look at a story like this and... Well, really be grateful that we're under the new covenant. Amen. And yet at the same time, the issues of the Old Testament are still the same issues of today. We are meant to live by faith in God. And as Ananias and Servira proved back in the early days of the church, you can't live a double life with God and get away with it. So a story like this shows us the holiness of God. Yeah, he's, he's patient. And he is good. But children of God, he's holy. He's not a liar. He's not a deceiver. He cares about how we treat him. He cares whether or not he's actually the number one person in our lives. And you cannot fake it with him. You can't tell him you're the best and have a secret compartment in your heart where the truth is, I'm the best, and him not know it. And even though he's so gracious and so patient, he's also got very high standards for where he wants to take us. 
He's not satisfied with 10% of our hearts. And he's not satisfied with 20% of our hearts. And he's not satisfied with 60. It's a passing grade. It's, it's a D minus, but you can still, you know, get to the next grade with it. He's not satisfied with it. He is a holy God that wants to be treated like how he really is by people who know him how he really is and love him for who he really is and are loved back how they really are. Number two, it is part of being a Christian to remember there is such a thing as the vengeance of the Lord. That sometimes there is a day where it's time for discipline. Where sometimes there is a day where God says, we're going to change things now. And we're going to have a moment where the report comes out and reveals what was really going on. And it's only the vengeance of the Lord if what was really going on was bad stuff. Amen? If they'd taken the Ark of the Covenant to battle for them, and Hophni and Phinehas had been holy Levites and holy priests, it would have been great. It only turned out really bad because they were trying to make something happen that wasn't real. But there's something sometimes missing in my life, maybe yours too, about the fear of the Lord. That, that sense of being tempted to do something and you don't do it because you know, if I do that, I'm not going to get away with it. Because there's no way I can hide it from the Lord. And he just, he's not that kind of God that lets us get away with stuff. He just isn't like that. And for me, that's totally my salvation. I love my kidney stones. I always come out of the hospital more humble and more grateful for God. I always come out more tender, more compassionate for my wife. I love my trips to the hospital. I am not, I'm not a good person. But I can be broken. It's like my only saving grace is that God can break me to make himself precious again. Because my tendency is to eat, want to eat the fat. Amen? And my tendency is to want to touch those who should not be touched. If I think I'll get away with it. But the fear of the Lord comes and says, God is good and God is holy, which means this thing you're tempted to do is not as good as you think it is, and you won't get away with it. Flee to the Lord. Walk in the light. Get honest. Get humble. Save yourself. Because there are times and seasons when God clears house. Point number three. For every leader, I think it is very important to remember that A leader's unholiness causes the people of God to suffer. Hundreds, if not thousands of men died that day because Hophni and Phinehas needed to die that day. And yes, they would have had their own sins. And years later, you find out that most of these guys were also worshipers of Baal and Ashtaroth, and they had the idols of the world around them in their heart too. But... We are connected 
The church in the world is grieving because of one man's choices. Guys, the church around the whole world, he was like the most famous guy next to Billy Graham. The church around the world, the the entire worldwide evangelistic organization is disintegrating. Everybody's rightfully distancing themselves from it. The church around the world is suffering. And you can't undo that. A dad cannot undo the fact that everything he does impacts his kids. A mom cannot undo the fact that her holiness or unbelief impacts her kids. A husband and a wife cannot undo the fact that everything they do, whether by faith or unbelief, impacts their spouse and their family. Church members cannot undo the connection that everything we do, whether by faith or unbelief, impacts the other members of their church. Pastors cannot undo the God-given reality that everything we do, whether by faith or unbelief, impacts the people under their care. This is reality. And it's a heavy responsibility. Anybody feel heavy yet? Anybody feel like this is the suckiest sermon to be back in face to face? I can't even just turn off the live stream like some people have gotten in the habit of doing. No, one of my favorite messages of Rob. Let's tune into one of these other guys. But this is what I'm talking about, about a, a, a lust for lies and not wanting to realize that everything I do impacts you. Because it's hard to believe that. And then I might really need to change. How much time do I have, Greg? You don't know. Ten minutes. <sighs> Things to watch out for. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a negative Nancy. I don't want to be a, a critic or a judge. I usually try to avoid criticism from the pulpit as much as possible whether i've done a good job or not but even just like in the last little bit most famous hillsong pastor north america comes out adulteries Um, the rise of the google prophets people who pretend to be giving words of knowledge but really they've just googled people on facebook and are presenting their facebook information as words of knowledge it would be like you know you all have to sign up for the service today so i find somebody who i don't know see if they're online find a few factoids about them that they put on the facebook page uh, the lord is telling me that you've got a spouse named jim and uh, you were went to school here and here yeah. i didn't even know this was possible but i start hearing even from the charismatic circles that that people are saying this is starting to happen that the prophets are, are actually just prophesying what they've got from a Google search. And it's, it's not hard to do because anytime you go to a conference, you have to register for it. A big wave of ghostwriter deceptions, popular Christian authors finding out that they don't write their own books. 
but they know that their name will sell 100,000 copies every time they put their name on something, and so they do that. I don't know what to do with the Trump prophets. I'm not really big into this, but I follow Dr. Michael Brown, who is saying, hey, hey, prophetic world, we have a problem because everybody prophesied that Trump was going to get a second term, and it didn't happen. And even after he lost, you're all saying he's still the president. And even after Biden got inaugurated, you're saying he's still the president because you prophesied it. And it's, it's like, how does that happen? The Capitol riots, it's not really made, made into the news, but a great American prosperity preacher prayed the blessings of God over that crowd that went over to the Capitol Hill right before they went. And you just think, I think God did show up. I think he's trying to tell us something. And it's not that we're doing great. Click worship. Um, Popular Christian worship leader recently writing a book about how he's repenting because so much of the Christian songwriting world is about trying to catch the latest wave of what's popular so that you can get your songs on CCLI and make sure you're making lots of money on YouTube and CCLI because clicks are worth money. So if you write a popular song, like if if you have a a viral song that goes on YouTube and gets like 100 million views, that's worth like almost a million bucks. And the pressure to be successful and that the payout for being a successful worship songwriter is... So he's just saying, I'm trying to get away from this world. Um, Online manipulation. I saw an interview with somebody who worked with a really popular megachurch, and he's saying, my entire job on a Sunday morning was to gather together the most excited people and make sure they're in the front two rows so that on the Internet broadcast, it looks like the church is really excited. That's just manipulation. And the last thing any Christian should do is manipulate anybody. We should want to have the, the most ugly pastor possible who cannot be brought to have a nice haircut apart from his wife's prodding appear as often as possible so that you know if something good happens. It's the Lord. That's Second Corinthians 4. I I think deep down we have a very sick relationship to the idea of success in the church. I think that's the problem. We have a worldly idea of what success means in the church. And we don't measure success by how much self-sacrifice we have employed for the glory of God to improve other people's life. But it's clicks, it's dollars, it's crowds, it's books, it's views, it's quality, it's sound, it's cuts, it's um, physical attractiveness. Like, Like the church should not have so many of its most popular people taking time out to work on their marriage, a.k.a. they have three kids with not their wife. That, sh- that should be... They shouldn't have churches. 
of 20,000 people. There shouldn't be Christians flocking to that. We should find that unattractive. Like, why do we find that attractive? Why do we find that attractive? Why, why do we find... Well, I don't... What? And then why do we want to imitate that? Or why do we want to evaluate success by being like that? Like even for me, you know, I became pastor about 10 years ago. May is 10-year anniversary. I'm beginning to think I have a sense of how you do this. And I just remember there was a, t- there was a time right around then there's this big wave of young pastors coming up in the States. There's only one of them still doing it well. And he was the guy God gave a brain tumor. All of the rest of them, alcoholism, drug use, affair, 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 robbing from the church, pretending to write books you didn't write. What? How do we elevate them? And how do us as leaders get to think that this is how you do it? And this is even worth pursuing. So I'm going to end this with this way. Thanks for your patience, everybody. I think, I think we would do so well to make it part of our regular prayer routine to unjudgmentally pray for holiness in our leaders and that they would all be people who have a heart for God. I don't even know how else to say this. If you read Samuel, this is always the issue. I'm going to raise up a priest who has a heart after my heart. I'm going to raise up a king who has a heart after my heart. There's so much temptation and pressure to make everything else besides being happy to lose your life for God, because he's amazing, the main thing. And it's actually really easy. And so I think we need to just pray for this. I think we should check our hearts. We should check our motivations, check our pressures. Check why we we love ministry, don't love ministry, love leadership, don't love ministry, want to be in the church, don't want to be in the church, and just keep pushing ourselves. Just realize, like, if you were a nurse and you were working in an old folks' home, you'd be wearing so much PPE because you know that people die here. And if you live in a culture where people die because of success problems every single day in the church, you'd just be like, I need my success PPE. I need to wear my success mask. I, I Personally, I'm committed to being the least successful pastor I can be. That was meant to be a joke. I have no ambition but to be the biggest blessing to regular Christians I can be. I love regular Christians. I'd be so happy to never go viral. I'd be so happy if we never put out an album again. I'd be so happy if the Holy Spirit found this just the most humble place to come where he didn't have to kick anybody's butt when he showed up. Don't parents love it when they come home and they don't have to spank anybody? Wouldn't it be great if we made it our ambition to be just unworthy of a spank from God? 
We love your discipline. We just don't want to have to deserve it. Something going on. And for me, I just feel like this whole COVID time has been a time of God just, he's touching the church. 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 And, you know, in Steinbeck, we have not been free from having hard things happen in our city either. Our ideas of success are not working. Holiness, devotion, humility, the love for Christ, namelessness, disappearing into history, not having a legacy, not caring if you have a position. There's so many glorious things to embrace which are both safe and good. So is anybody interested in that? Is anybody interested in being free of the pressures to be a success as a Christian? And just be like, I just want to be in love with God as much as possible and as free to please you as much as possible. I do like doing that. Would you like that? Why don't we stand and ask God to do something unheard of in our generation, even here, and maybe even keep it unheard? So I'm going to pray for us. Team, you can, I'll make room for you. You can come and assemble. God, would you save us? Lord, I know there's people in here who probably don't even deserve this message. They're wonderful. They're blessed. But God, would you save us? Father, you know by your own holy vision that we have so much work that needs to happen. Lord, in so many ways, we are profoundly compromised in the church. Lord, we so regularly have our leaders just go down in a blaze. And Father, we're the people who follow them. And God, I just lift this up to you. Father, I give you my own heart, and I just pray that you would do everything necessary in my life. That you, by your own evaluation, would say, here is a man after my own heart. And Father, we lift up to you, Lord. There's, there's lots of good, and there's lots to be thankful for. But God, I pray you'd lift up in all of our own hearts a discernment and a freedom, oh God. A freedom, oh God, to not try to compete with things that, that are kind of appear to be corrupt. And a freedom just to be here with you, to do the job you put in our hand without comparing it to anybody who's quote-unquote one of the great ones. To have the gifts we have and give them back to you without measuring them and feeling pride or despair. God, I pray you give us the holiness that sees the Lord. And Father, even now I'm praying this. I'm like, oh, I hope this prayer produces something good. And it's so compromised. Father, I pray this prayer would produce just love for you. A people who don't want to eat your fat, who don't want a piece of your glory, who don't want to be great standing beside Jesus, but want to disappear so that people can see Jesus. Father, I really pray for this. We really need this.
God, our kids need it. God, I pray for this. God, I pray for this for Calvary, Lord. Where we're, our vision of what to do in this building isn't exactly the humble Christ. I pray that you'd liberate us. Just free us from every pressure. Oh, we're in a big building on Main Street. Something amazing has to happen. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. People just need to be loved here for the glory of God. I just need to love the church and the freedom of the Spirit. We just need to tell the truth of God to each other and the truth to each other. Nothing important needs to happen here. We just need to be with Jesus and not try to make that turn into something important eventually. God, I want want the Holy Spirit to keep the holy part of his name when he comes here. Lord, make us love your holiness. Oh God, to be so in love and be so grateful when you afflict us into freedom. Oh God, I pray everyone would take their proper place in our lives to be someone that it's a blessing to love but so unimportant to worry about. God, I pray for this deep freedom in a time where we're so bound up with worry and comparison and panic and fear of missing out. God, would you come? 